0: Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning again to you. Um, It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, To begin, we have such a short psalm today. I just want to begin by, by reading our psalm one more time together. So this is Psalm 70. To the choir master of David for the memorial offering. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, today that you would illuminate this word to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, what you have for us in this word. Lord God, we pray also that we would not just be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word, that by your spirit we may walk in uprightness and faith all our days, and that we will call out with the saints, God is great. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do hope that you all are enjoying your summer. Um, As you might imagine, uh, summer for us in campus ministry is a very, very different rhythm. And uh, among many changes, one of the big changes for us in campus ministry in the summer is that the summer is wedding season. Maybe you've had the pleasure of of attending a wedding or two this summer. And if you're around weddings much, you will certainly come by a, a strange little phrase that goes like this, something old, something new something borrowed, something blue. Have you heard that one? Now, I can't um, give you much insight into the the history of this bit of folk wisdom, other than to say it's been a well-worn tradition uh, of good luck, and it's been recorded in print since at least Victorian England. However, it struck me recently that this very odd bit of folklore may actually be useful in a very different setting, as a kind of template for how we understand the Psalms. Probably wasn't how you thought that sentence was going to end, was it? You see, I think that that old phrase can give us some insight into the beautiful, multifaceted character of the biblical psalms, albeit with, with, with one small, necessary alteration in that final phrase. So, so here's what I mean. When we're trying to understand and interpret a biblical psalm, I think, I think we're wise to consider how does this psalm teach us something old? That is, something significant about its original author and context, in this case, of course, David and theocratic Israel. How does it teach us something new? That is, something um, about us as the modern day people of God in our historical and cultural moment. Something borrowed, that is, how this psalm was both prayed and fulfilled by our Lord Jesus during his incarnate life and ministry on earth. And finally, something true, that is, something of God's plan of salvation. So simply put, the Psalms, like all great poems, are rich and dense and able simultaneously to reveal truth about their world, of their original composition, about our world, about Jesus, and about God's eternal redemption of a people for himself. Are you with me? So this morning, I want to try this on together by by using this template um, as our four main points. We'll have four four short points for us this morning. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something true. But before we jump in, um, kids, middle schoolers, teenagers, um, can I challenge you to do something this morning? I want you to listen for those four things. And after the service, you know, in the car ride home or at lunch, I want you to tell your parents something that you heard today, that you learned from this psalm, something that was old, one thing that was new, one thing that was borrowed. That mean, that, remember, that means about Jesus, and something that is the true and great hope of all Christians. Can you do that? Without further ado, let, let's dive into this passage altogether. So first, something old. Simply, I, I want to highlight three things that I think we learn about David in this short psalm. First, David lived in constant danger. Secondly, David prayed against evil. And thirdly, David displayed a great humility. You see, in many ways, the central concern of this text is fairly evident, isn't it? Like, kids, I want you to do one more thing for me, okay? Look at the very first and the very last verse of Psalm 70. I want you to read those two verses and tell me what you think the main theme of those lines is. Can you see it? Now, friends, let's turn all together to verse 1. David writes, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Yahweh, make haste to help me. And verse 5, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and deliverer. O Yahweh, do not delay. You see, David, this great poet, he even structures his psalm with these helpful bookends to ensure we don't miss the point. What's the intended effect? In a word, hurry. I mean, this prayer, like in a lot of ways, it feels like a rocket, doesn't it? Like like a shimmering flare, David shoots up to God in his moment of greatest need. It's a breathless, desperate plea for God to come quickly and save. So here's my question of application for you. When was the last time you prayed like that? When was the last time you were so acutely aware of your need for God's rescue and deliverance and grace that you prayed a prayer like Psalm 70? You see, one thing that's remarkable about the Psalms, and I know you guys are studying them over the course of this summer, what's remarkable is how often David and the other psalmists pray like this. You all looked at Psalm 69 last week. Do you remember how it begins? Save me, O God. And later, make haste to answer me. You see, even though David was God's chosen king and the man after God's own heart, he was constantly threatened. And the time of the writing of this psalm wasn't just like a one-off occasion for David. He spent nearly a decade on the run from King Saul. He spent years fleeing from his son Absalom. He spent the in-between times, you know, defending Israel against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We're talking extended seasons of extreme difficulty and suffering of urgency and desperation? Should we, as God's people today, expect otherwise? Secondly, David prays against evil. Simply, do we? There's so much evil and danger, foolishness and wickedness all around us, isn't there? And for many of us, right, it's so easy to become cynical, to become angry, become resigned. But how actively are we praying, asking the God of all power to intercede for us and to put an end to all this evil in our midst? But look how David responds to his evil enemies in verses 2 and 3. Notice these verbs. Let them be put to shame and confusion. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor. Let them turn back because of their shame. Right? Effectively, David is, is saying, God, thwart these wicked plans. Stop these evil men. Turn them all the way around. And that word that we see, turn back, it's this great Hebrew word, shuv, which is the same root as the word for repent. Friends, remarkably, we see in this great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, both a righteous renouncement of evil and also a prayerful concern for the souls of sinners. And thirdly and finally, uh, this psalm reveals David's great humility. Look again at verse 5. I am poor and needy. You are my help and my deliverer. Right? By all external measures, David is neither poor nor needy, correct? He's the king at the very zenith of Israel's glory as a nation, He's the commander-in-chief of a mighty army. Every treasure and pleasure that existed at the time is right there at David's disposal. And yet he says, I am poor and needy. Why? Because David knows his proper place as a creature before the creator God. And it's this line at the end of Psalm 70 that calls to mind the gospel story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember the tax collector's simple prayer? He said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the text says, and he, that is the one who knew his sin and need, went home justified. Beloved, that's biblical faith. And there's no justification without it. Or as Jesus put it in the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which brings us to to point number two, something new. But of course, the psalm is not just David's song, but it's a song of all the people of God. So the question remains, what does this psalm teach us about us? Friends, I believe that Psalm 70 serves as both an invitation and a challenge to us. So quickly, how is it an invitation and a challenge? First, it's important to, to recognize that Psalm 70 is actually a direct repetition of the end of another psalm, Psalm 40, verses 13 to 17. In other words, this is the second time in the Psalter these exact same words appear. Why would that be? Many commentators um, skip totally past Psalm 70. They simply just say, you know, refer back to my thoughts on Psalm 40, but not Martin Luther. He devotes 10 pages in his commentary to this short psalm with this note. Perhaps God includes these words twice because of how often we need to pray them. I mentioned earlier that the clear emphasis of this psalm comes with that book-ended line, make haste. But make haste as a translation may may not really cut it for us, right? It may not really capture the force of the phrase. You see, in Hebrew, the first verse literally reads this, God, to deliver me, Yahweh, to my help, hurry! The the kind of awkward sentence construction reminds us of, of a child who's been promised ice cream. Mom, Dad, to the car, to the store, hurry! Um, Parents, have you heard that a million times this summer? You can feel the force in David's plea to God. Hurry up! Get going! Come on! Some of us are uncomfortable praying that prayer or addressing God in that way. But some of you in this room are feeling this emotion acutely this morning you're caught up in a season of strife like David was. Perhaps it's a season of sickness where health and fullness of life feel so far away. A season of financial hardship where every bill and payment threatens to sink you. A season of relational strife where reconciliation feels impossible. A season of loneliness that won't dissipate. A season of difficulty with a child who's rebellious or needy and somehow unwilling or unable to receive your loving help. A season of struggling with temptation and sin where it feels like the onslaught will not relent. Beloved, are those not the exact moments that our hearts cry out within us, Oh God, come on, hurry up, heal, Provide. Have mercy. Deliver us. Friends, if that's you this morning, Psalm 70 is your psalm. Let it serve as your invitation from your loving Father that you have permission to express your desperation to our covenant God without any sugarcoating of your need or discomfort. If you're in Christ, you can and ought to pray this kind of prayer. And if you are praying this hurried, harried prayer this morning, even under your breath right now to God, keep going. Hold fast to his goodness and deliverance. Don't give up. For others of you, this prayer might feel like the farthest thing from your experience today. To you, it's another summer day. No one's really seeking my life. not feeling particularly poor or needy. If you ask me who my enemies were, I'm not really sure I could tell you. You might be asking, what do I do if that's me? Is this sermon, this psalm, simply for others and not for me? See, here's where the challenge of this psalm really comes into play, and it's twofold. This psalm, like much of the Bible, y'all, it assumes that we will experience moments of great difficulty and trial, even persecution for our faith. The challenge that comes down to us then is, will we respond? Will we respond with faith and trust in the Lord's goodness and salvation, even when circumstances are against us and perils are all around? Will we respond like all the men and women of faith before us? Like Moses before Pharaoh and the Red Sea and Sinai? Like Rahab in Jericho? Like Esther before the king of Persia? Or Daniel before the king of Babylon and his den of lions? like Stephen before the council and the high priest, and like all the faithful saints who remain faithless and nameless to us, but whose names are written forever in the Lamb's book of life. But the flip side of this challenge is, how are we to live when our lives are not in the throes of turmoil and desperation? Will we remain prayerful? Will we prepare for and expect persecution and trials to come? Will we rejoice? Of course, it's no sin not to find yourself uh, in a season like this, to find yourself in the opposite season, in a season of peace and joy in this life. Praise God if that's where you are. But times like that are certainly the exception in the Christian life. And you see, here's the real insidious danger that we're warned of in this psalm. There's another possibility for where we might see ourselves in this psalm, isn't there? Though by default we tend to read Scripture and assume that we're the protagonist. Right On the side of the righteous, and of course, uh, by God's grace in Christ we are. But there's another possibility for where we might appear in the psalm, isn't there? See, without God's grace, Jesus' forgiveness and righteousness, and the transformative, sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, we are all God's enemies. What about you? Are you the one who rejoices in the losses of others? Do you delight in the downfall of believers? Have you become the kind of person who finds pleasure at each new story of a pastor falling from grace, of another denomination embroiled in sin and controversy, of your holier-than-thou neighbor being humbled by life circumstance? Are we the scoffers that David describes? Are we the ones saying, aha, aha? Brothers and sisters, I must confess, at times, I am. And I suspect you're not all that different from me. And that's why we need Jesus. Which brings us to point three, something borrowed. I want to take just a minute to consider Jesus' experience on earth. As with Moses before him, the rulers and authorities of this world sought Jesus' death and destruction before he was even born. From the moment he came into the world, evil men hunted and pursued him to death. He was literally born on the run was forced as a boy to flee as a refugee to Egypt, was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, was schemed and plotted against by the Jewish religious authorities, by the Roman authorities, betrayed by those closest to him. For many of us, that might not be how we often consider Jesus. This past year, I read a popular Christian book entitled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and though the book certainly had some helpful things to say to Christians um, who are overly busy and in need of recovering uh, the biblical rhythm of Sabbath rest, I felt that this book also gave an overly simplistic impression of Jesus as this like, really laid-back guy who you know, wasn't bothered by much and didn't bother anyone, uh, who you know like, took a lot of naps and never got stressed out. Have you come across that kind of characterization of Jesus before? We can begin to think of him as like this quiet, contemplative guy who led a tranquil, stoic, meandering kind of existence around the small towns and villages in the foothills of Jerusalem. Y'all, that was not Jesus' life. Read Mark's gospel. It, in particular, paints a very different picture. No, in fact, Jesus' life looked a lot more like David's. It looked a lot more like Psalm seventy. Than a smooth ride with no turbulence. I mean, was there ever a moment in Jesus's short time on this earth where a prayer of desperation like Psalm 70 would not have been fitting on his lips? And I hope that that's a tremendous comfort to you today if you're in the throes of suffering this morning. I want you to hear me say very, very clearly these Psalms are Jesus's Psalms, and they're your Psalms. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, is also your mediator, your high priest, who sympathizes with your weaknesses, who knows your temptations, who remembers your frame, and who ever lives to intercede on your behalf at the right hand of the Father. And if that's true, beloved, if you have an advocate and a high priest and a Savior like that, then you're never alone. And no circumstance, No difficulty, no trial, no temptation, no fear, no anxiety, no calamity, no struggle can ever ultimately plant you or separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus or rob you of the ultimate joy and gladness that Jesus has won for you. But he won it at such a great cost. You see, friends, it really is impossible to read this psalm and not remember Jesus in the face of his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. In verses two and three, David writes, Let them be put to shame who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. And it's those cold, Bitter notes of mockery that should strike us and send shivers up our spines. For those are the very words we just read that Mark records were hurled with scorn upon Jesus at the height of his passion. The famed preacher Charles Spurgeon called that harrowing, aha, the dog's bark. What shame. What humiliation. Not only was Jesus stripped, Spat upon, flogged, but the king of glory come down from heaven was fitted into false robes, forced into a false crown, and mocked to the chorus of that heinous hyena cry, Aha! But how did our Lord respond? Recall the words we read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 2. It said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore, him, he bore himself our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. What amazing grace. Why did Jesus do that? How did he resist the temptation to vindicate his innocence, to display his almighty power? Beloved, don't you know the answer? He did it for you. He did it that verse 4 of Psalm 70 might be true for you. It says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Beloved, it's the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb alone that brings this glorious truth to its final fulfillment. So fourth and finally, um, something true. There's one bit of good news left for us to discuss today. You see, like David, the psalmist, Jesus, the suffering servant, prays this prayer for you. And notice that the prayer isn't merely that the Lord's people would be delivered from their distress, or simply be released from the oppression of their circumstances. It doesn't say that, but rather that they would rejoice and always declare the greatness of our God. I love the way one of my seminary professors, uh, Memor put it. He said this, God will save you from your troubles, or God will save you through your troubles. But either way, the Lord's people will be delivered, and God will be exalted. Amen? Friends, I want to end with this. The superscription for Psalm 70 reads, for the memorial offering. We might be thinking, what in the world is that? Well, the memorial offering was a part of the grain offering. But though the grain was typically used to make bread for worship for the priests, the memorial offering was set apart and burned on the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's a process that we see detailed for us in Leviticus chapter 2. What's happening? Well, it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. To God belongs the first and the best. God is greater than all the things of this world. But why is this song the one that David earmarks to be sung at the memorial offering? I think the key to answering that question comes for us in a little phrase we may have read past in verse 4. So crucial in this text, y'all, is this little phrase, in you. It says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. It's in him. It's in him alone that the joy and gladness that every human heart longs for is found. You see, because our God is the God who invites sinners to cry out to him for rescue, and who grants the humble, eternal satisfaction in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, if that doesn't give you joy... If that doesn't cause you to cry out with the psalmist, God is great. Let God be magnified. I fear nothing will. If you're in this room this morning and have not by faith received the salvation that comes in Jesus alone, I urge you today to consider Christ. Psalm 70, like the rest of the Bible, presents us with only two options, two types of people those who are still in their sins and enemies of God who will be put to eternal shame and dishonor, and those who by grace alone will receive mercy and salvation. There are no alternatives. But here's the promise of this psalm, the something true you can take with you to the proverbial bank and all the way to glory. Beloved, if you love God, and his salvation, which has come down to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can cry out to him and he will save you. And no matter what circumstances this life may present, you will have eternal joy. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer number one says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, as many of us know, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And if that's true, then redemption is coming. And we also ought to cry out with all God's people from of old another hurried, desperate prayer. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Oh Jesus, our Savior, please do not delay another minute. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are humbled by your word. Thank you for it. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus has given us these words, these words of hope in the face of desperation, of urgency. We pray that we would make Psalm 70 our prayer and that we would trust in you. That, Lord, though you may be able and willing to deliver us from our circumstances, we will say... With all of God's people, God is great. We thank you and pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.